Next, this month's special series focus on global medicine. ReachMD is taking an in-depth look at how medicine is working toward health and longevity for people around the world. Join us all this month for the latest medical research and treatment across borders. The health of people around the world is said to be a global responsibility, one which is shared and often spearheaded by physicians in the United States. How can physicians from the United States help build sustainable international medical projects? And what practical, financial, and ethical issues must be considered before undertaking these endeavors? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Parmi Suchdev, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Global Health at Emory University and Medical Epidemiologist in the Nutrition Branch at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Welcome, Dr. Suchdev. Thank you. So why do you think physicians are becoming more interested in global health? Well, I think it's quite evident that the interest has blossomed, and I think there's a lot of reasons. And the one that I think on a more practical level for those who are out in the community practicing is that, you know, many patients that you see on a day-to-day basis are from other countries themselves and are immigrants. And just due to this, I think there's an increased interest in understanding the cultures and understanding where these patients come from. Also, just increasing travel of Americans themselves to other countries is also increased awareness of, of the health issues. Are there also more international health opportunities for physicians in training, such as medical students and residents? Absolutely, absolutely. I think this has been demonstrated quite well. The AAMC does an annual poll where they ask medical students, have you participated in an international elective? And if you look at that graph, it's gone up from about 10 to 15% in the 90s. And most recently in 2008, they did a web survey of all the 200 or so medical schools and found that about half of all medical schools are offering some type of international health experience. So there's definitely an increase. And this also happens beyond the medical student level, even at one people go on to residencies. There have been some recent surveys, too, into pediatric programs, for instance, that also show a little over half of all residency programs are also offering some type of global health experience. So, yeah, that interest is definitely increasing. Physicians and trainees who are interested in international health work may not realize that there are some ethical challenges. And I want to just go through these one by one and hope you can elaborate a little bit. Um, But some critics say that these trips are self-serving for the people who go on them. What are your thoughts on that? Anyone who's gone abroad will often face this experience. The first time I did a global health experience, for instance, when I was an undergraduate, coming back and just, you know, did I get more out of this than the community that served? Especially when you go as a trainee, do you feel like you have the resources and the knowledge to provide the care that is needed? Our medical system training is focused on tertiary care. When we see a patient who comes with fever and cough, we get a chest x-ray to make the diagnosis of pneumonia. But when you're in a developing country context, uh, use your stethoscope and your history to make the diagnosis. And so often we aren't trained to provide the care in global health settings. So often the feeling is that, yeah, maybe those who go abroad are getting more out of it than the community we serve, and there's not mutually beneficial. I mean, but clearly the patients abroad do benefit from people being there to help. But one other criticism is that because of the lack of healthcare access and certain laboratory tests and diagnostic procedures, that you just can't follow current standards of healthcare delivery or provide continuity or access. And what do you say to the to that, you know, when a a short-term trip really can't provide that continuity. 
I really think it can. I think a lot of people have felt this, myself included, that maybe continuity isn't possible. The guidelines we learn here in, in the United States cannot be applied, but I think it can be. And there are international organizations, you know, such as the World Health Organization, that has criteria to make diagnoses and to provide care. And these interventions have been shown to be effective. And usually the problem isn't that the lack of knowledge or the lack of diagnostic tools. It's, it's really just the resources to get these and to apply these interventions. And going back to pneumonia, I mean, if with a fever and cough in developing country context, that's going to be pneumonia. And with low antibiotic resistance, giving an appropriate antibiotic is going to result in the beneficial impact. So I think it can be done. Could following up patient populations and performing research in international settings produce also an ethical challenge? What kind of IRB might you use overseas? When you talk more onto the research side of doing international health work, that definitely raises additional issues beyond just when you're doing clinical care. And that's actually where ethical guidelines are actually better established for doing research. And it really depends on the context of where you're doing the work, whether you're doing it with the university or through a non-governmental organization, for instance. And most countries do have local IRBs or institutional review boards or some version of an ethical review committee. And it's really important to adhere to these when doing research. But I think more research definitely needs to be done because in a lot of context, the resources aren't there and the training's not there to do research. And in some ways, that's probably the best tool we can offer as physicians from the U.S. going abroad is to provide research and provide tools to do evaluation of existing programs. You recently co-authored an article in the Ambulatory Pediatrics Journal detailing some guiding principles for international health work to kind of overcome these challenges that we've been talking about. Can you give us a highlight of what some of those guiding principles might be? This model was created by those of us who had done international work and felt that these ethical challenges were common challenges that anyone faces. And we're really looking for some type of tool to help guide work that's done abroad. And and when we looked to the literature, there really wasn't anything out there. There's the SPHERE guidelines, which uh, in 2004 were created to guide humanitarian relief in response to disaster, but that's not really in most cases when physicians do short-term clinical work. And so basically these guidelines were just set up to to look at a program, both whether you're creating a new program or if you're just looking at a list of programs that are out there on the web, for instance, and deciding which of these programs best serves me and then what will be the most valuable for my own career in educational development. And the seven principles are mission, collaboration, education, service, teamwork, sustainability, and evaluation. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. Parmi Suchdev, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Global Health at Emory University in Atlanta. We're discussing the practical, ethical, and financial considerations of international volunteerism. Now, in your seven guiding principles, one of them is collaboration and making sure that there is a good relationship between the aid group and the community it's serving. How do you make sure that the local community is able to sustain the medical work once the aid group leaves? And this is financially, but also having an infrastructure to do so. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the first step in setting up a collaboration with the local institution is to really understand what that institution's mission is and understanding what their objectives are and serving needs that they feel are important, not necessarily what we or a person traveling feels is important. And I think if you pick a project that is beneficial to the host community, then sustainability is more likely to be ensured because it'll be valued. For instance, spending all these resources to do a project on the HIV AIDS and really the host community doesn't have resources to provide ongoing treatment for HIV AIDS versus they really feel that you know nutrition is a big problem, you would be wasting your time because once you leave, the project would no longer sustain. So I think it's really communicating effectively with the local organization and finding out what they feel is most important to them. So that kind of goes right into service as one of your seven guiding principles, and that's the commitment to doing the work that the community actually needs and wants. In your experience and places that you've worked, what are some of the more manageable service goals that you can try to achieve in these international communities? In my experience, service kind of goes into two parts. Those of us who are clinical providers are trained to do clinical work, whether that's seeing patients, doing a history and physical, providing short-term acute care for manageable conditions. But there's also another piece to that, which is public health interventions. And that's something that we're often not trained in as medical providers, but something that we can really provide. And what do I mean by public health interventions might be, let's say, the problem of diarrhea. So you might see in your clinic 10 kids with diarrhea and might offer like a oral rehydration solution to treat the diarrhea, IV fluids if it's severe cases, but that's not going to really address the source of the problem with the diarrhea, which is problems with safe water, problems with hygiene. And so you might argue that your service goals might be better served focusing on education on hygiene, interventions to address safe water, for instance, providing chlorine tablets to treat the water, maybe bringing a group of engineers to help address some of the access to water problems, and really focusing interventions, your service on public health uh, will have a, a more sustainable impact. Your paper also mentioned the development of dental health and how fluoride varnishes might be one manageable way to make an intervention. Another problem is the issue of nutrition in some of these countries where people may not have access to healthy foods. How do you tackle such a broad subject like that? Much of my research focus is on nutrition here at the CDC, and there are a lot of approaches you can take to addressing malnutrition, and it, it remains to be the, the most common cause. Um, over half of all childhood deaths in, in developing country contexts are associated with malnutrition, so it's, it's a universal problem when doing global health work. And I think you mentioned the key problem is it's easiest to kind of recommend dietary diversification, access to food, but when you have poverty, this is often not possible. So... There are other interventions that can be used, for instance, supplementation, whether that's iron supplementation or multiple micronutrient supplementation. One program we've introduced recently in both Kenya and Haiti is a micronutrient powder called Sprinkles that uh, it looks like a packet of sugar and it's applied directly to the food. And each each sachet only costs about one U.S. cent. And uh, the idea is that you take the existing food that's available in the family that might not be very nutrient-dense and make it better and healthier, and the sustainability and the acceptance of this product is, is very high. In your paper, you state that even with the best intentions and thoughtful planning, there are patients for whom adequate care cannot be given and well-meaning interventions can have unexpected effects. What are some examples of that? 
One example that I recall in El Salvador when I worked there as a resident was working in a rural community called Los Abolinas in rural El Salvador. And a group of engineers came and, and well-intentioned, decided to build a footbridge across one of the streams that ran through the community. It was the main source of water for the community. And during the rainy season, this stream would get flooded. So they built a fancy metal bridge, brought welding equipment. The total cost was about $30,000. And it might have served the community well, but for instance, the week following this intervention, a child had fallen off the bridge and broken his arm. And so that was an unintended consequence for this footbridge. And maybe that money and resources have been better used to, for instance, improve nutrition or improve access to water. Another case that happened with me was taking inappropriate medications that you might not realize would be needed that are often donated by pharmaceutical companies. For instance, we had hundreds of inhaled steroids that were donated and taking these into another country where more acute management of asthma or respiratory conditions is needed and inhaled steroids might not be as accepted and then the medical waste that's left behind by all the plastic and the metal is often something that needs to be considered as well. We just have a couple of minutes left. For physicians who would like to help with international medical projects, do you recommend that they um, try to build upon the work of an existing project or to try to start something new, perhaps in a different area? I think it really depends what what your goals are. And I I think there are a lot of excellent programs out there. And I think the key is is finding a program that that you have a personal connection to. um, a lot of my students often ask me that question, and whether that's, you, you know, you know the language, it's your country of origin, or it's a project that's already going on with your university or, or your city that you live in. I think there, there are a lot of existing programs, and if you, you know, if you have motivation, have a group, and can create your own program, that's, you know, for, for the few who want to do that. But I think there's a lot already out there, and one of, my, one of the best advices I received when I was first training was pick your spot and continue to go back to that spot, and I think that's a really good advice, and you can have a lot longer impact if you, if you keep going back to the same place. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Parmi Suchdev. We've been discussing the practical, ethical, and financial considerations of international volunteerism. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Global Medicine, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com.